0: Um, So we're continuing in Matthew. We're in Matthew 9, uh, verses 1 to 8. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. All right, well, good morning again. I'm Jeremy, I'm I'm the lead pastor here and uh, great to be opening God's Word with you this morning as we dive into Matthew 8 and 9. And I hope you are managing okay during this lockdown um, as the weeks kind of extend. I need to clarify as well, just so you know, I'm doing okay. I sent out an email earlier this week mentioning that I may have punched a door and as the messages of condolence sort of you know started to flood in, I realize I may have overcooked it a little in the email. I just need to make it clear i 'm actually 'm actually doing pretty good at the moment uh, and feeling pretty good about it and um, and I think look it 's helpful as a community that as the as the weeks kind of roll on that, um, that really we stay in connection with one another because the truth is not all of us will be experiencing lockdown the same way at the same time, and that 's a helpful thing if you 're at the moment feeling reasonably down or discouraged. It's helpful to be a part of a community where not everyone is feeling that way and yet some other people are, so there's an amount of solidarity. But also, uh, if, if really everyone around you is just struggling, even that itself can be quite discouraging. And so it's a beautiful thing to be in a church community where there are people just in, in handling it in different ways and able to encourage and uplift one another as we kind of move through this time. And so, um, yeah, my encouragement for you is wherever you're at is that you just over this week be getting into God's Word. And we uh, last week put out um, some daily readings that uh, if you haven't got those yet, please let us know. We'd, we'd love to pass those on to you. They're all sent out the week before. Obviously, things in the post at the moment are taking a little while to get through. Um, but we, if we could just encourage you, just be in the Word day after day, no matter how you're feeling, because ultimately it's God's Word that encourages us. And if you at the moment are feeling a little bit discouraged about your lack of desire to get into God's Word, I had, I had this thought over this week. I, um, earlier in the week, I'd been inspired to listen, I'd never do this, but I'd been inspired to listen to some classical music. So we're doing like a home workout, and normally you put on something pretty pumping, but I thought, I'm going to put on some Rachmaninoff this week. And incidentally, I thought, well, maybe this could be a lockdown thing. You could call it getting ripped with Rach, or how about this one, Rachmaninoff. Are you Anyway, that's a freebie for you. Reese, you're a PT. If you're watching out there, that's, you know, take what you want with that. But, um, but as I was listening to it, I, I put on this classical music and I felt the urge to just speed it up a bit. It was taking a while to get going, I was waiting for the drop. And as I did that, I realized we just, in a, in a modern, industrialized, fast moving consumer culture, we lack the patience for deep thinking, don't we? We, we really have a fast food approach to everything and we struggle to just slow down and to think about either profound works of art or just anything particularly profound. And it occurred to me that really as modern people, that our base level of distractibility is just way above what it was even a hundred years ago. And so of course, when it comes to sitting down and reading the very word of God, that that's going to have an impact. In fact, one of the skills that a Christian will need to have is to unlearn this fast food culture of just immediate gratification, to be able to sit before God's Word that is full of art and humanity and, and the most profound thoughts that have ever been written down. These are culture-changing uh, truths. And so just as a word of encouragement, be patient, get back into God's Word, don't be discouraged. And press on as we read God's Word day to day. And even this morning, as we sit under God's Word, as we hear the clear teaching that Jesus has all authority over all things, that it would get the focus and attention of our minds that it deserves. And so in order to do this and to get into God's Word this morning, I just want to encourage you to do a couple of things. Turn off your phone, any other notifications that are rolling down your screen, full screen the video so there's no other distractions. Have maybe your Bible, a physical Bible, out in front of you. And just take a moment now to clear everything out. And I'm going to pray for us that as we open God's Word, we would be able to hear and pay attention to what He has to say to us through Matthew 8 and 9. And to do that, I'm going to pray through part of Scripture, through Psalm 19. So take a second now just to clear your mind and to focus your heart. And I'm going to pray for us together. Let's pray. Father, it says in your Word... even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Father, may we experience the all-satisfying goodness of your word this morning. And may we set aside distraction and the fidgeting of our minds to behold your son Jesus as he really is. We need joy. We need our souls revived. We need to be made wise. We need to be enlightened. We are sinners in need of grace this morning. And so we praise you that because of the blood of Jesus we are forgiven and we are made new and we can approach you in prayer and in confidence. We pray that you would hear our prayers and revive our weary and half-hearted desires and give us a passion for your name and a love for our neighbor and all for the sake of Jesus. We pray this for your name alone. Amen. Well, We're about to open a longer section after we've spent a while moving through the Sermon on the Mount in very short sections. We're about to move through over an entire chapter through Matthew 8 and 9. And we are in the Gospel of Matthew. That is Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, his account of Jesus' life and his teaching, his ministry, and then finally his death and resurrection and his final commission. And we've just finished a section called the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus laid out some of his most stunning teachings, and right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we get a comment as to how the crowds have responded. Jesus has been on the side of a mountain, preaching all kinds of revolutionary ideas about what it's going to mean to follow him, ideas that continue to shake the world today. And look what it says as the crowds respond to this teaching, almost open-mouthed after everything Jesus has said. In Matthew seven twenty eight and 29, it says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching." For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. They're amazed because Jesus, when he teaches, has real and genuine authority. The way he speaks and how he speaks and what he speaks of carries this immense authority. They were used to hearing their scribes, their teachers, their experts in the Bible, teach in a completely different way. But Jesus here speaks with such authority that they are are shocked by it. And he doesn't use cheap tricks to be authoritative. I read an article recently on the the wave of populist teachers that have made their way into politics over the last few years. And it's a characteristic, unfortunately, of humans that we tend to respond to people who speak with anger as though they're authoritative. There's a self-confidence and a kind of an assuredness that comes with being angry that makes it seem like someone has power and authority and they know what's going on even though often it actually betrays the fact that they are very much out of control or entirely driven by insecurities. But for us, we respond to angry people like they're authoritative. But Jesus here doesn't use cheap tricks like that to seem authoritative. He just is. He doesn't yell and carry on. He had this presence about him that when he speaks, he speaks with truth and power. And he didn't speak like their scribes. Their scribes, their authorities in the Bible would quote other rabbis or teachers to show that they had some kind of authority. But if you notice, as we went through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would say things like, You have heard it said, but I say. He would quote himself, not depend on some other teacher. And so when he says all of these things, and it speaks truth, and it sets people's hearts alight, they're just shocked by it. They're amazed at the authority that Jesus had. But in case you're wondering that whether or not Jesus was just a powerful orator, we'll see in this next section as we move into chapter 8 that it's not just his teaching that exudes power, but that Jesus has real world power. And real world power to actually change things and change the world that we're living in. Look at what happens right at the beginning of Matthew 8. In Matthew 8, 1-3, we read his interaction with a social outcast, someone who has a disease called leprosy says when he came down from the mountain so Jesus finished preaching and he comes down the mountain great crowds followed him and behold a leper came to him and knelt before him saying lord if you will you can make me clean and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying i will be clean and immediately his leprosy was cleansed and Jesus said to him see that you say nothing to anyone but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount, and as he's coming down the mountain, the crowds are following him. And they perhaps don't even know why, but they just think, this guy seems to have authority, so we want to be wherever he's at. And as he's going down the hill, a leper comes up to him. And an ancient reader reading this would have probably gasped at this point, because leprosy, which is a disease known in modern terms, as Hansen's disease, was a skin infection that was absolutely incurable during Jesus' time. And worse than that, the way that it was transmitted was through physical contact. So if you had leprosy, you could not be around anyone. You were permanently quarantined. And so to hear that this leper is coming up to Jesus would put tension in the story. Most people reading this would be thinking, oh my gosh, what's going to happen next? And what's even stranger is that it's unclear how he actually got to Jesus. If you were a leper, it may have been the case that you either rang a bell when you walked around or you would shout to give people fair warning that you were coming. Knowing that it was transmitted through contact, you made sure that you kept people away from you. But somehow, this guy makes it before Jesus and he kneels in front of him. And he says to him, Jesus, if you just will it, you can make me clean. And Jesus touched him. Now just think about how profound this is. This may have been the first physical contact that this man has had since he was a child. Do you know what that would feel like? If you're living alone in lockdown right now, you, you feel the intensity of the lack of, of physical connection and contact with other people, the extreme isolation of that. This was this man's existence for years, maybe the extent of his entire adult life. And here, Jesus reaches out and actually touches him. I mean, consider how profound that would be for him. And not only that, but he touches him and he says to him, Be clean. And in that moment, his life was completely transformed. The leprosy leaves him and he is made entirely clean. You think how profound this moment is? Just think about the fact that Jesus didn't have to touch him. We see elsewhere that he performs miracles simply by speaking. But you see here that Jesus not only has authority, but he has compassion. And he sees this man, and he reaches his hand out and puts his hand on him as a demonstration of compassion and love to this man. And he heals him before everyone. We see that Jesus doesn't just have power to speak. He has power over disease. And here his first miracle is, is of someone who is a complete social outcast. But the next miracle that we see in the passage is with someone at the complete other end of society. Look what happens when a centurion comes up to him in, in Matthew 8, 5 to 13. It says, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is par- lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Now because we've been following through the gospel of Matthew and Jesus is the main character in the story, It doesn't seem strange that a centurion would come up to him. But think about the actual context. Jesus is a poor Jew in a town that's under Roman occupation. This centurion is in authority over Jesus. He's in charge of Jesus. And yet he comes up before him like he's approaching someone who far outranks him. And he comes to him and says to him, My servant is suffering terribly. Will you heal them? And Jesus says, All right, I'll come to your place and heal them. And the centurion responds by saying, look, I'm not even worthy to have you in my house. I'm I'm that far beneath you that it's above me that you would even come to my house. In fact, I know that you are that powerful that if you just say the word, my servant will be healed even here. And not only that, he goes on to give an illustration. He says, look, I'm a centurion. I'm in charge of soldiers. And when I speak, I speak for Rome. So if I say go, Rome says go. If I say come, Rome says come. And he seems to understand that it's the same with Jesus. That when Jesus speaks, God speaks. So if Jesus says, live, you live. If Jesus says, die, you die. He understands that Jesus has authority. So he says, if you just say the word, my servant will be healed. It will be done. And Jesus is astonished by this. He says, not even in Israel have I seen this kind of faith. Not even among the people of God who should get it have I seen this kind of faith. And yet this outsider from another nation comes and understands exactly who Jesus is and how much authority he has and bows down before him. And not only this, but this section goes on further. Jesus goes on then to heal Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. Then he goes on to cast out demons. In fact, the demons bow down before him in terror, afraid of what Jesus is going to do to them, and he casts them out. Then while they're sitting in a boat, a storm comes up, and Jesus, with his own words, calms the storm. It demonstrates power over nature and even disaster. Jesus demonstrates he has authority in all of these spheres. But really, this whole section culminates in the final miracle here, where Jesus reveals just how deep and how powerful his authority really is when he heals a man who has been paralyzed in Matthew 9. It says this, And in getting into a boat, he crossed, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Rise Pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. So Jesus comes back to his hometown, and word has apparently gotten out that Jesus has been performing miracles, the crowds have been following him. And so a crowd gathers to his home, and a paralyzed man is brought before him. They bring him on a bed. And the first thing that Jesus says to him is, take heart, so he has compassion on him. He says, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now notice that this doesn't follow the pattern of the other miracles. When a leper comes to Jesus, he heals his leprosy. When the centurion says, my servant is sick, he heals the servant. When demons come along, he casts them out. When a storm comes, he calms the storm. But with this man, the first thing he says is, take heart, your sins are forgiven. And we see his reason for doing this initially, because initially it gets under the skin of the scribes. Notice that when they hear Jesus say this, they say amongst themselves, this man's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They realize the way that forgiveness works. You can't forgive on behalf of someone else. You can only forgive someone if you are the wronged party. And they know that the Bible teaches that sin is not primarily about how we treat one another, though that is a part of it that first and foremost, sin is an act against God. It's a rebellion against God. It's a rejection of God. And so ultimately, if there's going to be forgiveness for sins, it has to come from God himself. And Jesus here doesn't say, take heart, son, God will forgive your sins. Or take heart, son, your sins might be forgiven. He stands there in the place of God and says to him directly, giving him pardon, son, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes get it. They realize that what he is claiming to be is God himself among them. And they say, he's blaspheming. You can't do this. But then Jesus says to them, look, what's harder to say to someone, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk? And of course, if you're not God, both of those things are impossible. But if you are, then he can do both, and he does. And the man is healed as a demonstration that Jesus has authority, not just to heal of physical ailments, but to heal our deepest problem. That is sin. So the reason Jesus does this in this way is to demonstrate that the deepest need that this man has, far more than being able to walk again, is to be forgiven of his sin. The truth is that everything else that Jesus has demonstrated power over is just a symptom of the fact that we live in a sin-broken world. That our deepest need really is to be reconciled with God. That is our deepest issue. And if he weren't to address that, then really he has no power at all. Years ago during a game, a rugby game, a player called Julian Huxley in 2008 went in for a tackle, reasonably routine thing, but he was concussed again, you know, for whatever reason is reasonably routine in rugby, but afterwards he suffered a seizure and it's, um, it's par for the course then to go and get a brain scan And when he went in for a CAT scan, he discovered that it was much worse than a severe concussion and the headaches that were following on from that. He found out that he actually had a brain tumor. And because of that, at that moment, he obviously quit his career and everything became focused on dealing with that very issue. Now, that is a reasonable response to what happened. In fact, you would find it very surprising if he went into that meeting and said, Actually, doctor, if I could just get some, some pretty heavy pills for the headaches or something to fix the seizures, then that'll do me. I'll be fine, thanks. Of course you wouldn't. All of those things were just a symptom of the deeper issue, which was the cancer that needed curing. And at that point, it took precedence over everything else. When Jesus stands here before this paralyzed man, he sees really that his deepest need is to have his sins forgiven. This is the authority that Jesus has. In this whole chapter, it's kind of everything is building up to this. Jesus demonstrates his authority over disease, over demons, over disaster. But then finally he demonstrates here that he carries the full authority of God to even forgive sins. That the whole reason he came was to bring forgiveness and not cheap forgiveness. In fact, unlike the other miracles, it wasn't enough that he would just say your sins are forgiven. This is the one miracle that was going to cost Jesus his life and his blood. That he was going to have to die in our place. Forgiveness does not come cheap. But he did this to demonstrate that he has all authority. That there is nothing over which he does not have authority. That he was not just a good teacher or a mighty prophet or some kind of a, a leader to follow. That this is God in human form who has all authority over all things, even sin and death. And that's why wedged right in the middle of all these miracles is this tiny, weird little story and interaction that he has with two disciples who are following him along. Come with me to Matthew 8, 18-21. In the midst of all these swirling stories of Jesus demonstrating his incredible authority, there's this little interaction with two people who come along. It says in Matthew 8, 18, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And Why is Jesus being so harsh here? The first guy comes up and says, Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. And almost as if he didn't even hear the question, he just says, foxes have, uh, and birds have their place to rest, but I have nowhere to rest. Basically, that is that Jesus has a mission, and that he's come here to get something done. But then the second one comes up to him, presumably saying the same thing, Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. And, and he says, but first, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus says to him, let the dead bury their own dead. Could there be a harsher thing to say to a grieving man? what's going on here? What Jesus seems to be detecting here in these two would-be disciples is a sense of half-discipleship, that they want to half-follow Jesus. And Jesus is saying, amidst all of these stories demonstrating his complete and utter authority, that if Jesus has all authority, you cannot half-follow him. If Jesus has all authority, you cannot half-follow him. In a um in a biopic about Eminem, which has um become a cult classic, a movie called Eight Mile. It is uh probably the biggest tragedy about the film was that it didn't get the Oscar that year. But anyway, the film depicts um Eminem as kind of like a nervy scared rapper who's kind of like coming up in the scene. And uh and most of it's for drama. Apparently he was a pretty formidable sort of battle MC, and that really this nervous character that he pres- like kind of takes on in this film is really nothing near reality, but it builds for good drama. And at the end of the film, there's this battle between the bad guy, this MC who has a crew named Papa Doc, and him, and this is his, this is his vindication, right? He finally gets confidence, and he, he comes out swinging. But the whole thing turns on the fact that the guy that he's battling isn't isn't really a thug, isn't really a gangster, and isn't really isn't really authentic, and that Eminem actually is. And the the kind of the the line in the song that gets him is this: he says, "This guy's a, a gangster, but his real name is Clarence, and Clarence lives at home with both parents. And if you've seen the film, you can you know it, you can see it, right? And Clarence's parents have a real nice marriage, and this guy don't want to battle. He's shook." Because we all know there ain't no such thing as halfway crooks. And he quotes a line from kind of Rap Royalty Mob Deep. There's a song called, a line that said, there's no such thing as halfway crooks. The idea was you can't be like Clarence and pretend to be an MC and go to a private school and then dip your toe in in this kind of MC life. That either you're all in or you're all out. You are a thug or you aren't. There's no such thing as halfway crooks. And this little story here with its strange interactions, this stilted interactions between these two people, is where Jesus is demonstrating clearly that there's no such thing as halfway Christians. If Jesus has all authority and forgives completely, either you follow him with your whole life or don't follow him at all. There's no halfway in. Jesus doesn't half forgive. He doesn't halfway heal. There's no half gospel. And so there is no half following Christ. When Jesus says, follow me, you either follow him or you don't. He has all authority, and so we cannot half follow him. And the question really would be, if you believe that Jesus has power over disaster, disease, demons, even death, why would you want to half follow him? And if Jesus is this powerful and that so compassionate that he would reach out and touch the leper, that he would stoop to encourage the paralyzed man, That if he has this much authority and this much compassion, who else would you want to follow with your whole life? Who would be more worthy of our whole lives? Who would be more worthy of setting the priorities of our life than a king who is this powerful and at the same time this good? I mean, you can understand it. If you're following someone who's really good, but they don't have much power, as much as you would like them, you really couldn't throw your whole lot in with them. Or similarly, if someone was authoritative, but they were not good, it would be dangerous to throw your lot in with them. But Jesus has all authority, and yet he is a God who loves to the point where he would pour out his life for the people who rejected him. Who else or what else would you want to follow with all of your life? And so if we're to follow Jesus, then it means that we adopt his mission to his world. That's why the Gospel of Matthew finishes with Jesus literally saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That means if you follow Jesus, that his mission becomes your mission. It means that if you're a follower of Jesus, that you are a missionary. That if Jesus is the only one who can meet our greatest need and can deal with our issue, which is sin, then our priority too becomes to love people by pointing them to Jesus, to make disciples, to see people go from death to life. It means that your life purpose becomes not to get as much stuff as you possibly can before you die, but to see as many people find forgiveness and healing and peace in Jesus before we are taken from this world. And so what are we going to do on this? How are we going to apply this? Well, even though we're in lockdown, Jesus' mission continues. And so in the first half of this year, a lot of our focus was as a community, kind of getting back after the year that had been and moving down as one service to the high school. But the entire focus for the second half of the year is to share the gospel as wide and far as we possibly can. And while lockdown doesn't feel like an amazing time to be reaching people for Jesus, the truth is that the mission continues, lockdown or no lockdown, pandemic or no pandemic. And so to kick things off, we feel really called at this point to do something to empower the church to reach people with the message of Jesus. And so in a week's time, on Monday the 27th of July, we're going to start running Alpha, which is a course for people finding out about who Jesus is, online, on Zoom. So I'm going to be running it on Monday the 27th of July at 7.30 at night. And we would love for you to be inviting people along to that. And as a way of kind of segueing into that, because none of us have done an online course before or invited people to that before, this week uh, on, um, on Wednesday... We're going to run like an online social event. We can't gather together, we can't mix together like we normally would. So we're going to do something new, and it's the time for it, why not? We're going to run Mel actually is going to run a dance class for us on Wednesday night. And so if you wanted to bring some people along to invite them to an online event for the first time ever, she's going to be running a free class for people. Now, I I had I had a 6-hour Zoom marriage prep course thing to get a marriage license on Monday, and in that course they said one of the things for for married couples out there that you should do, is try something new together, right? It builds communication, all of this stuff. So if you're looking for a segue to invite people, then uh, that's a great opportunity to do that. But um, after that, she's just going to give a a warm invite to people to come along to Alpha the next week. But we're going to do that uh, in order to create an opportunity to then invite people along to hear the good news of Jesus, because if there has ever been a time when people have needed to know the one who has all authority over all things, including disease and death, now is the time. And I realize at the moment that it might feel like, gosh, this feels like one more thing to do and lockdown is already a bit overwhelming and all of that. But the truth is that we are called to love in any and every season. And Jesus' mission And Jesus' word is so good that even now is the right time to do it. I want to finish this time now even just by giving you a quick excerpt from the, the biography of Hudson Taylor, who is a missionary to China, who recounts the story of the conversion of an unlikely convert in a small town called Ningpo and the reflection that the man has on his mission. Listen to this. Hudson Taylor writes, On one occasion I was preaching the good news of salvation through the finished work of Christ when a middle-aged man stood up and testified before his assembled countrymen to his faith in the power of the gospel. I have long sought the truth, he said earnestly, as my father did before me, but I have never found it. I have traveled far and near without obtaining it, and I have found no rest in Confucianism or Buddhism or Taoism, but I do find rest in what I have heard here tonight, and henceforth I am a believer in Jesus. Jesus. This man was one of the leading officers of a sect of Reformed Buddhists in Ningpo. A short time after his confession of faith in the Saviour, there was a meeting of the sect over which he formally presided. And I accompanied him to that meeting there, to his former peers, where he testified of the peace he found in Jesus. Soon after, one of his former companions was converted and baptized, and both of them now sleep in Jesus. A few nights after his conversion, he asked how long this gospel had been known in England. And he was told that we had known it for some hundreds of years. What, he said, amazed? Is it possible that for hundreds of years you've had the knowledge of these glad tidings in your possession and yet have only now come to preach it to us? My father sought after the truth for more than 20 years and died without finding it. Why did you come no sooner? May it never be said of us, why didn't you tell me sooner? Let's not wait till the end of lockdown. Jesus has all authority to forgive sins now let's not wait a moment longer. Let's be praying over this week that over the rest of this year, God would be using our community powerfully to get the gospel message out there that sins might be forgiven and people might find joy and healing in Jesus. Let's pray now. Father, we praise you that you sent Jesus to die in our place for our sin, that we might be fully forgiven. We praise you that the risen Lord Jesus has been granted all authority. That we are commissioned and sent to make disciples, to spread the gospel and to see people find forgiveness in Jesus. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us by your spirit and grant us courage and a love for others that we might see many come to know hope in you. We pray that as we run these courses online that people would come and hear the good news and be saved and that there might be many baptized among us that we might have much reason to rejoice in christ father we pray this for the sake of your holy name amen